This is One North Stories. Our goal here is quite simple. We provide hyper-local, brand-based storytelling at the intersection of science, technology, and business here in Singapore with a global perspective. We are starting with a launch series focused on technology startups, and then plan to take the podcast broader, telling our stories, your stories, about the Singapore deep tech ecosystem. Whether you work as a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road or in Southeast Asia, already doing R&D in Singapore, or perhaps a student dreaming big about technology, or someone in between. Join us to learn about the exciting technology being developed in our labs in Singapore, their translation journeys to market, and the inspirational people coming together to make yesterday's dream reality. If you have future episode ideas, segment ideas, or want to partner with us on this exciting journey, please get in touch. Our contact details are in the show notes. These are our stories. We hope they inspire you to create your own. And now, on to the show. So we give you customers, we give you founders, we give you technology, we give you the, the, the venture idea already defined. And of course, I drink my own Kool-Aid, but I do believe that because of that approach, the, we can manage the risk much more sensibly. And everyone has an interest in making sure that the company becomes successful. Therefore, the likelihood that the company becomes successful is higher. So essentially, there's two angles. Angle number one is technology. So we look at hundreds of technologies over a yearly basis. Um, um, we have a whole process for that where we look at quality of the IP, technology readiness level, defensibility of the IP. How, how does this compete as compared to what's already out there? Let's say if you take 30 ventures, maybe 15 of them will be based on technology. Okay. Then the other half is defined together with our corporates. So we have a continuous process where together with our corporate partners, we define problem statements that they see in their industry. And then, of course, also sometimes we have overlap. That's the perfect scenario, but it's not always possible. For this episode, I've sat down with Luke Illiens from the Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. In operation for two years, they have a systematic process for building deep tech startup companies. Luke shares about de-risking deep tech venture building through their alliance model and network, a scientific council, entrepreneurs in residence, mentors, an advisory board with specific vertical expertise, plus corporate partners providing problem statements and research institutes providing technology. With a one-third rule of thumb, they vet through hundreds of technologies and approximately 100 potential co-founders a year. They have ramped up from three companies in year one, seven companies in year two, and target a steady state operation of 10 deep tech companies a year. Listen on to hear how they do it. Hello, and welcome to One North Stories. Today we have a special guest, a founder of a different kind. We have Luke Elines from the Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. Welcome to One North Stories, Luke. Thank you so much, Ruben. Nice to be here. Singapore Deep Tech Alliance, it's a venture creation group here in Singapore, started several years ago by Luke and his co-founder and looking to see deep tech startups. Luke, could you start by sharing a little bit of your background prior to Singapore? And then, yeah, what brought you to Singapore to start Singapore Deep Tech Alliance? Yeah, sure. So my background is uh, I've been an entrepreneur for as long as I can remember. Uh, I started with ideas and, and trying to start companies from the age of 17, uh, many failures many learnings, but then around the age of 24, 25, I really started getting serious. So I started a few companies in Europe at the time already in deep tech, 
so trying to commercialize technology from different European universities. And then eventually I sold one company. And after that, I became involved in working with deep tech entrepreneurs, trying to commercialize uh, technology from research institutes. Initially, I did this with a company called High Tech XL. That's a company out of the Netherlands where I'm from. And we started doing deep tech venture building in Europe at the time. Um, so this was 2018, roughly. Way before it was sexy to do deep tech venture building. We were doing that already. So I got involved there and did that for a while. After that, I moved to China. The thesis at the time was, if we build European high tech or deep tech companies, why not help them to expand to China? Because China was opening up to the rest of the world. So I moved to China and built another company there called Xnode. Xnode is uh, one of the leading accelerators in China. Uh, so I was there for five years and then moved to Singapore about two years ago to start Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. But the journey has been from Europe to Asia, but the common denominator has always been high tech, deep tech, uh, commercialization and working with entrepreneurs. Okay, great. Thanks. So you said you, you've always had this entrepreneurial mindset, but also building deep tech companies and yourself as a tech founder. So did you have a first technical love in anything? I wouldn't say I, I had a first technical love, but I, for me, to some extent, this also comes out of idealism. I really believe the whole ultimate purpose behind entrepreneurship is to be a, a force to drive change, to make societal progress happen. And what I had already way back in the days is a bit of a frustration with lots of companies that are being created that, that actually might not fully drive positive change in society. That was my kind of starting point. And I started looking at the time technologies in, from universities in Europe. Many interesting technologies that have a lot of societal relevance, but for some reason they are not always commercialized or not always commercialized with speed or with success. So I would say my starting point was much maybe more depth rather than a particular technology. So Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. So you've been here two years from China looking for opportunities. You have a co-founding managing partner, Claire Chen. Both of you were at Xnode. How did you decide to kind of pivot or move from China into the Singapore market? Yeah, so when I was in China over the five years with Xnode, the passion to try to work with entrepreneurs, commercialize technologies and build companies that can affect positive change was already there. So I, I was trying to do two things in China. Number one, bring our European portfolio of companies into China. This turned out to be difficult because geopolitically China's position changed and therefore it was more difficult and sensitive to bring these type of companies into China. And the second purpose at the time was can we try to work with Chinese universities to bring technology out and build these type of companies? So we tried very hard for multiple years to work with the likes of Tsinghua University and others to take technologies out from the lab and make it lead to commercialization. And also there, unfortunately, we were not successful. Chinese universities are very big, very complicated to deal with, specifically me being a Laowai, a foreigner, as they, as they would say in China. It's not the easiest to, to maneuver there properly. So I came to the conclusion after roughly four years in China, I can stay here my whole life, but what I really want to do is not possible for a yeah, variety of reasons. Um, and then the choice was go back to Europe or stay in Asia. Um, I decided to stay in Asia because I believe Asia is the future. Uh, people in Asia are still hungry. Uh, Asia is growing. There's capital in Asia. And there is still a lot of unmet potential. Uh, and then why specifically Singapore? Partially because indeed, as you mentioned before, Clara and myself, we were working together already. Uh, through Xnode, the, the Chinese company. So Clara was our, at the time, our general manager uh, here in Singapore. We have very complementary skill sets and we're working together with a lot of success. So that was part of the reason. But partially as well, if you look at Singapore, Singapore has been investing significant resources and capital into IP creation, technology creation, R&D, uh, and is trying to 
build up all of those capabilities. At the same time, if you would compare Singapore's input, meaning the amount of money being spent on R&D and research, and then output, namely what percentage of that research or technology is valorized and lead to value creation, the reality is it's not yet where it needs to be. If you compare it to the US, for example, the input-output ratio is it's still, there's something off there. Okay. And to me, that means opportunity. Because the input is there, the resources are being put in, and ultimately this should lead to output in terms of value creation. So that's why we said, let's try to see if it's possible to build a similar setup as we built previously in Europe, but then specifically for Singapore. Okay, so looking to harvest what's been put into the RIE, Research Innovation Enterprise Plans, for the last 20 plus years. Exactly. Yeah. And we actually do see that starting to come to fruition, a lot more companies starting out and gaining traction. Also, what, what we do find, and you know, people keep saying this, and it's the truth is the tech biz entrepreneur, we're lacking. We're lacking people who want to do the entrepreneurship with technology. And so that, that comes to me to like your business model at a Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. So at the end of the day, I mean, you decide to do venture building as opposed to, let's say, um, venture capital. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah. As opposed to venture capital, that's a very deliberate decision. Can you share why do you want to do the venture build versus let's say that's your capital route? Yeah, I think it's a great question and I'll answer the question, but maybe I'll take a bit of a detour first. So if you actually look at the history of venture capital and Silicon Valley, underscoring the word Silicon, the whole purpose of venture capital historically has been to finance companies where normal forms of finance are not available. So companies where the risk is very high, where typically the technology risk also is very high to them and uh, take high risks and have high returns. What slowly happened across the world is venture capital started moving toward, more towards, you know, SaaS, B2B software, uh, e-commerce, uh, because the, the risk is lower, uh, yes. it's much more scalable and it's easier to make returns, right? However, the original purpose of venture capital, I would argue historically is to fund the, t- these type of companies. So the deep tech companies that I would argue have not been fully funded properly over the last, let's say 15, 20 years globally. Now, I think we shouldn't fool ourselves. If you want to try to build deep tech companies, you're probably doing the hardest thing imaginable. Team risk is high. Market risk is high. Technology risk is high. You need much more capital to bring a deep tech company to uh, fruition of the revenue than you do for, a, a, let's say, a B2C e-commerce company. It's much more difficult to find the right talent. Uh, I can go on and on. It's much more difficult to scale. There's of, often hardware components. Uh, there's cost for protecting the IP. So it's extremely hard. So for us, when we decided what are we going to do in Singapore, we indeed deliberately decided to go the venture building approach, which means we're, we're much more active. We're builders, not really investors, more builders. And the reason is we believe if you want to do this sensibly, you need to have more control on how you manage that risk. If you're just putting in the capital, that's all you do. Whereas if you're a venture builder, we can control how do we source the talent? Where do we find the talent? How do we source the technology? How do we assess the technology? How do we bring in the right partners? How do we help with supply chain? So by being a venture builder, even though we go earlier in the process, we can control the risk more. And therefore, we think we will be more successful in ultimately building those companies. Just to quickly, how big is Singapore Deep Tech Alliance now? So we, in terms of team, we're relatively small. So I think we have, what is it, six people now that we employ full-time. We have around us, and I'll, I can explain that a bit more, our business model is an alliance model. So that means we have kind of like a network organization where we work with many different parties that all have a vested interest to work with us towards venture creation. Because of that, we have quite a big pool of people that support us. So we have a scientific council, a global scientific council of individuals that help us on the technology due diligence process. So that's a dozen people. 
we have a pool of EIRs, entrepreneurs in residence. So those are actual entrepreneurs that have actually successfully built a deep tech company before that coach and guide our ventures. We have a pool of members that ventures can call upon for a specific type of advice. We have an advisory board of, I think at the moment, five people that help us with specific vertical expertise. So through that network, the entire organization that supports the companies is bigger. Yes. Um, in terms of venture creation, we built 10 companies so far. So 10 in two years. 10 in two years. Yep. Three in the first year, seven in the second. You're still ramping up or do you think that's kind of a steady state for the... Our team? aim is to build 50 over the next five years. So that's 10 every year. Um, and I think that's more or less, you, you kind of max out there uh, because to build 10 companies successfully at the, at the end of your venture building program, you it, we have this historical uh, 33% ratio that seems to be true across Europe and Singapore in our venture building program. So roughly one third of the founders that we accept into the program make it towards the end. Roughly one third of the venture teams that we have at the beginning of the program make it towards the end. So to have 10 companies, you need to start with 30. And that means lots of talent, lots of different technologies. So I don't think you can realistically do more than that. You have Deep Tech right there in, in the name of the organization. What is Deep Tech to you? Because Deep Tech's, you know, an open interpretation these days. Yeah, I think that's a great question. We have Deep Tech and Singapore in the name, right? So both, you need to be bold to be willing to do that. So for Deep Tech, our definition is a Deep Tech company is any type of company that's based on a scientific breakthrough or research and IP that has been protected and that, is, that has defensibility and or a business that is based on engineering that's very difficult to copy. So that's our definition. I think deep tech nowadays gets misused a lot. We have a lot of sometimes investors that we speak to that they state that they invest in deep tech, but then they don't invest in hardware, which is already odd because a lot of the scientific breakthroughs oftentimes have some type of hardware component. So, so that's our definition. So that means, for example, if it's purely a software company, for us, that's not really deep tech. Okay. What if it's, let's say, software AI for drug discovery? Can be deep tech, but it depends on if the engineering is truly difficult to copy. Okay, so then it's, yeah, back to the hurdles that the founders need to have either as a starting point or to initially get over. Exactly. Let's go back a little bit to the venture building idea. You shared briefly, you have this control and guidance on how things get started, how things get created, seeding 30 potential ideas and getting 10 a year to actually, let's say, register, launch as companies. How would you say your model compares to what other people are doing, maybe here in Singapore or you know, your experiences elsewhere. Yeah. So I think if you look at venture builders, there's uh, multiple different models out there. So there's, there is a model where essentially the venture builder is closely connected to a, a VC fund and the support of the venture builder is rel relatively minimal. And what I mean by that is you recruit a bunch of different people. The people are responsible. So the entrepreneurs are responsible themselves to come up with an idea and to work on that. And then after a certain period of time, you invest. And it's really kind of like a pray and spray type methodology. So lots of founders, lots of different ideas, and then you invest in a few and you're relatively passive as a venture builder, but you rely on the law of big numbers okay. where a certain percentage will become successful. I think that approach can really work because the reality is with VC in general, it's a, it's parallel distribution, right? So there's only a small subset that will make up for the rest. So that's one approach. That's not our approach, but I would say that other venture builders that take this approach. Then maybe second, you have venture builders or incubators that are closely attached to a university or a research institute. So I, ASAR, of course, also does its own venture building. I think there's other universities that do the same. These are oftentimes very focused and really, at least from what I've seen, they take a few cases, try to put a lot of resources for those particular cases and then really help to drive them forward. And then there's our approach, 
So we are a little bit in the middle. So we don't do one or two, let's say, very focused per year, but we also don't do 100. And what is central behind our philosophy is, and that's also the name of the company, Singapore DTEC Alliance, underscore the word alliance. So the main thing we are trying to do, we're trying to build long-term partnerships with many different type of stakeholders and make sure that all those stakeholders have a vested interest to work with us so that we can spread the risk over multiple different stakeholders. So what does that mean in practice? That means in practice that in Singapore, we're fortunate to work very closely with ASTAR and with other universities where we have access to the technologies uh, that um, ASTAR has been developing. We conduct due diligence on those technologies and then we work really closely together to build the company. So the researchers are very much working with our founders. ASTAR oftentimes tries to help us with additional R&D support in case we actually end up commercializing. So that's on the Research Institute side. Then we have corporate partners, corporate alliance partners. Those are corporations that have signed a contract with us where they agree to be a member in our alliance. In exchange for that membership, they provide us with problem statements. They provide us with opportunity areas. They provide us with ideas for venture creation. They provide us with their technology stack. They oftentimes finance pilots and proof of concepts with our venture teams. So that's the, the research side, the corporate side. Then we work, of course, very closely with government to bring in the right resources as well. Then we have the entrepreneurs. So that's multiple different stakeholders there. And we believe that by bringing in those stakeholders at the same time, collectively, the risk is lower, but also the value proposition for the entrepreneur comes better. So instead of saying, join our program, and let's say on Monday morning, you come into our office and we put you in a room, you put a bunch of sticky notes on the wall and you try to come up with an idea and let's see what happens. Actually, what we say is join our program. On day one, we already have defined ventures for you. We already have conducted technology due diligence with our research institute partners for you. We've already reached an agreement with the research institute that we are allowed to commercialize this technology. We've already reached an agreement with the research institute that they will they are willing to work with you to further the technology. We already have 12 or 13 corporate partners that have signed agreements with us that they want to be your first customers. So we give you customers, we give you founders, we give you technology, we give you the, the, the venture idea already defined. And of course, I drink my own Kool-Aid, but I do believe that because of that approach, the, we can manage the risk much more sensibly. And everyone has an interest in making sure that the company becomes successful. Therefore, the likelihood that the company becomes successful is higher. Okay. That's very comprehensive. I was going to say like you provide a diving board, but probably it's like a more like a launch pad um, with rocket boosters on it. I like to think so. so I want to unpack that a little bit because you, you talked about the research, the corporates, their problem statements, their technology stacks, government partners, and the entrepreneurs who want to build companies with you to solve this. You have these, let's say, 30 ideas a year. Do you have any systematic way of, let's say, creating these 30 ideas, starting with technologies or problem statements? or also what founders potentially want. How do you curate the, these 30 ideas? Yeah, so we do have a, a systematic approach to that. So essentially there's two angles. Angle number one is technology. So we look at hundreds of technologies over a yearly basis. Um, um, we have a whole process for that where we look at quality of the IP, technology readiness level, defensibility of the IP, competing, how, how does this compete as compared to what's already out there? What's the attitude of the researchers in terms of wanting to support the potential venture to be created? So we look at many different things. And then we ultimately select a very small subset of those technologies into the program. And based on those technologies, oftentimes, of course, we have all, all already identified application scenarios, use cases. And therefore, I would say roughly half of the ventures that we define are defined based on technology. So that's, let's say, if you take 30 ventures, 
maybe 15 of them will be based on technology. Okay. Then the other half is, as you mentioned, defined together with our corporates. So we have a continuous process where together with our corporate partners, we define problem statements that they see in their industry, problem statements that may, they themselves might have, opportunity areas that they see in their industry that they feel could be suitable for venture creation. So roughly speaking, the other half comes from there. And then, of course, also sometimes we have overlap. So sometimes, yeah. and that's, of course, the perfect case, we might have a corporate that has a problem statement, and we actually have a technology that we've already conducted our technology due diligence on that actually fits that problem statement perfectly. Then it's, that's the, let's say, the, the perfect scenario, but it's not always possible. Okay, so then you have these 30, let's say, launch 10 a year. So let's say 10 incorporated companies. So you have your Singapore Deep Tech Alliance team. You have the founding management team. How many founding people in, in the actual company would you have? One, two, three? Our rule of thumb is two to three. Two to three. We don't like one and we don't like more than three. The one, I mean, of course, there are exceptional people, but it's very unlikely that you have all the skill sets representing one yeah. person to build this type of company. More than three becomes difficult because then the cap table starts to become, there's only 100% to divide, right? Yeah. So, so then the, you might have problems with incentives over time. So ideally two to three, typical profile, CEO, CTO, COO. So if you start with 30 ventures or venture ideas, that means that we will are looking at having, let's say, 100 founders in the beginning of the program. And then if we want to have 10 in the end, rule of thumb, probably 30 founders are left. And then especially for, let's say, the early weeks, early months, even up to a year, how is the working relationship between SDTA and uh, the co-founders? I assume, again, because you guys are providing these guardrails, these guideposts, I mean, it's very hands-on, especially at the beginning and then less and less. What, what would someone experience if they were a, a co-founder in your program? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. Again, for me, there is about managing risk, right? So on day one, founders get access to our venture journey. So we have a whole uh, software tool chain that we built uh, in the past in Europe and that we've implemented here in Singapore. In that venture journey, they get access to all our ventures. So the 30 ventures that we have predefined, they get access to all the material. Every venture has specific technology. So they get access to all of that. They get interaction sessions with our corporate partners so they can describe why do we think this is an interesting opportunity and why are we interested to potentially pilot or POC for this particular venture. Similarly, for the research institutes, they come in, they will explain the technology. So all of that happens in the beginning. And then, of course, there's the process of team formation. So in this first period, which is roughly four months, we do not require founders to be full-time simply because the risk is extremely high. We don't even know yet if they are going to be finding founders that they click with. They haven't even figured out yet which of the ventures that we have predefined they want to work on. So therefore, we don't think it's sensible. Let's imagine you are the average 45-year-old and you have a family to support to say goodbye to all of that at that moment in time. So we allow for people to be part-time. Of course, if you can and want to be full-time in the program, great, but it's not immediately a necessity. So Luke, you've got this very well-defined team that, that's moving forward after four months, you decide to incorporate You've got the problem statement, the technology in front of you. What if, let's say, five, six months down the road, it's not working out? Oftentimes, we hear about companies pivoting, sometimes slightly, sometimes, you know, U-turns, multiple U-turns. How do you handle a situation like that? Especially because you have all this predefined plans with not only you, but your alliance partners as well. Great question. So a few things to say on that. First, it's been my personal experience that pivoting and as an extension of that, let's say lean startup, right? So uh, finding a problem, quickly speaking with customers, quickly building an MVP and having this very rapid iteration cycles. I would argue that this is less true for really deep tech companies, simply because oftentimes deep tech companies are based on scientific breakthroughs. The core of it is the technology and the technology, uh, especially when you've done your technology due diligence right, 
it's quite clear what the value proposition is there. So we are now looking at a cancer diagnostics technology, um, which if we manage to commercialize that will help to self-diagnose cancer, something like a hundred times faster than what you can do today in the market. That's a very clear value proposition. And at least from my point of view, if you can bring that to market at a certain price point, this is a business that has a high likelihood of success. So part of the answer is, I think pivots are less likely. If you have to find, if you've done proper technology due diligence, and therefore you are really clear on the value proposition, that's one. Now, having said that, of course, this still occurs. When it occurs, we of course try to look at the founders, right? If the founders are really good and they find after a certain period of time, actually this direction is not working, we're going that direction. Great, we support that uh, because in the end, the founders are the ones that need to drive the company, especially after we let it go uh, once the program finishes. So that's not necessarily a problem. The only caveat there is we, of course, have our focus areas. We have our corporate partners that have certain focus areas or, or areas of interest. So if they decide to go, let's say, in a completely different direction. So, for example, we're building a medical device company, but they go fintech, just to mention something yeah. random. Then we will probably tell them, guys, let's stop because this is really out of scope for us. Okay. So then they can exit the program, close up, and then just relaunch whatever they yeah, want to do. Exactly. Okay. You take equity in these companies. Can you share a little bit about, okay, don't necessarily say, I have to say how much, but you want to hold it for some period of time. And then I assume cash out. But again, as you said earlier, you're not a VC model. So how do you decide and say how long you, you want to hold the equity? And then also a follow-up question, like who else takes the equity at the beginning? I assume the co-founders at some point, but your corporate partners or initial investors also? Yeah, so we do take equity. I'm definitely not a charity. So we, we do this because we try to build companies that drive societal change, but also, of course, we need to make a return. So I'm happy to share how it works and there's no secrets there either. Now, the 20% that we take, this is our quantification for uh, everything that we do. So the all of the, the technology due diligence that we do over a yearly basis with the research institutes, the pre-negotiation on allowing to commercialize this in the first place, all the corporate partners that we bring in with the pilots and the POCs and the customers, the entire program, et cetera, et cetera. And the 80% is then reserved for founders. You're right. We have certain corporate alliance partners that work with us with the specific purpose of wanting to co-invest. And if that's the case, it's always a little bit case by case negotiation because not every company is the same, right? But typically that would come out of Singapore Deep Tech Alliance equity. Similarly with research institutes. So we have had cases with ASTAR where we built companies together with ASTAR and ASTAR ended up deciding that they wanted to take equity. Also that came in that particular case out of our equity. So we try to entertain those discussions, but of course it depends on how much value everyone provides to the company. Yes. So, so the founders have 80, you guys have 20, the company's running and now it needs to raise more funds. I assume like further fundraising then comes out of the founders, 80%, because then it's their company, they have the controlling stake and they're then building on that. No, so, so we do dilute together with right. the founders. So we okay. really, we, we really see ourselves as founders. So also the, the shares that we take, they are common shares, so they're founders shares, not investors shares, Okay, which means we dilute together with founders as they raise more, more funding. Okay, Luke. So we're, we're here at the end of August, 2023. So you've been two years on the ground running. So you've said earlier, first year you did three ventures, second year, seven steady state operations, 10 launched at least in your five-year plan. Have you had to close any of these down yet? And then maybe also could you share interim success stories? Yeah, we've already had to close, I think one down so far which is fine. That's part of the nature of doing this early stage. So it's not a problem. So successes, I mean, of course we didn't have any access yet because we are active for two years. If yeah. we would have an accident in two years, I think 
I mean, I would be able to get anyone's money because we would <laughs> do something that's completely uh, out of the ordinary. Um, having said that, so we are seeing early indicators of success. So in batch one, the company I'm most enthusiastic about is a company called Aprisium. In fact, that's a spin-off that we did together with ASTAR. So the, we found the technology from ASTAR focusing on heavy metal detection or contamination management. So this was a sensing device that you put into any type of waste stream, water, soil, etc. And the sensing device is able to detect up to 16 heavy metals completely automatically. So the value proposition there is you put the device into any waste stream, you have 24-7 hyper-accurate measurements on heavy metal composition of your waste stream. And if you look at how this is done nowadays, oftentimes companies have a contract with a testing company where there's a physical person that has to go to the waste stream, take a sample, bring it back to the lab, and then you get a report three or four weeks later. So the, this is cheaper. It's more accurate. It's 24-7. It's even predictive. So that company we built last year, they raised money from an external VC, I think a few months after the program, and they're going really well. So they are in the process of doing Series A. They're growing in terms of revenue. So that one I'm very positive about. And of course, for us on paper, that represents very significant return so far. And then in batch two, which graduated only a couple of months ago. Yeah, I mean, that's many companies I like, uh, but maybe just to point out one or two, there's one company called Lubo. Lubo. L-U-B-O. Again, this came from a technology from A-Star. So we found a polymer additive technology that you can add to paint. And the specific polymer is aimed to tackle the following problem. When ships sail, or not sail, when ships go from A to B, they accumulate a lot of microorganisms that stick to the side of ships. This is called, to, to solve this, is called anti-fouling. The average ship accumulates 150 kilograms of microorganisms per square meter in about half a year, which was when I heard this for the first time, I was amazed. This increases drag, it increases weight of the ship, plus you bring microorganisms from, let's say, ecosystem A to ecosystem B, which is not necessarily something that you want to do. So this specific polymer reduces this by up to 90%. So you apply this to the side of the ship, then you reduce the anti-fouling effect significantly. So that's another example that I think is interesting. And lastly, what you see is, I'm, I'm strongly convinced that a lot of the research and science is of course funded by public funding. Hence, it is aimed at societal uh, improvement. Uh, so you see in a lot of the companies that we are building that they have a big sustainability component. The ones I just mentioned, both have a significant environmental sustainability component. So I think that's also important to point out that there's this very big correlation between deep tech, building deep tech companies and companies that do something useful for society. Okay, so when, when you're setting up these ventures and then, then launching them, I mean, each venture is going to have, let's say, uh, a different goal that you want. But how do you set the goals for these ventures as you launch and, and incorporate them? We all talk about unicorn status, and, or maybe not all. Unicorn status is, is a term out there, but that's just a headline at the end of the day. So what's more realistic metrics as you launch these companies and set targets for the founding team? Yes, I think in the program itself, we have a very clearly defined kind of ABC of what it takes to build a deep tech company. So that's super clearly defined milestones and deliverables and we have a whole methodology because we've been doing this especially with our operations in europe and now in singapore for two years we've been doing this for seven eight years so we have exactly the playbook for how you build companies and that's also what founding teams are evaluated upon as they are in our program so that's doing program is very clearly defined you either hit those milestones or you don't if you don't you're out if you do and you can be considered for proceeding in the program post program of course typically one of the first goals is to make sure that they raise some money at the moment, they do. We are, of course, more hands-off. 
So we're still supporting, but we're no longer the ones driving it on a day-to-day basis. So then it's up to the founders to set the goals together with their board and the advisors that, sorry, the investors that they have. Now, in terms of unicorn status or not, I'm personally of the opinion that specifically for deep tech companies, becoming a unicorn is not necessarily the goal. At least for us, it's not necessarily the goal. Um, if you just look at data, and of course, we looked at that prior to starting Singapore Deep Tech Alliance, where do many of these companies exit? Actually, many of them exit by being acquired by larger organizations. So for us, that's, I would say, two scenarios, which are both fine. Scenario one, the founders keep driving the company and just keep growing it. But even then, I'm not sure if it will, in many cases, go IPO. It can be a very successful company without going IPO. Yeah. And B, the company gets acquired uh, around Series B or Series C, maybe by a bigger corporate. Uh, and of course, for us personally, because we are so early, there's also opportunity for us to exit through secondary transactions. If there's an investor coming in around Series B or C and they want to acquire a bit more stake, they can always make us an offer to buy us out and we can then look at that. Okay. You talked a little bit earlier about this environmental sustainability component and what you're trying to seed. I know you have several different themes that that you look at. Can you share a little bit about the themes that you look at when you're seeding these companies? Yeah. So we have a couple of verticals that we focus on. So uh, because we have the corporate partners and we try to build up corporate partners within a vertical. So we have as much relevance, of course, for the ventures. So those are advanced manufacturing, healthcare, energy, and semiconductor, those four. And of course, because we are so much focused on these scientific breakthroughs, we see climate tech as our umbrella. So climate itself is not an industry. Yeah. It permeates across industries, but we see that many of the companies that we are building fall within that kind of horizontal umbrella. So those are the four areas. And we look broadly at different companies. So we have medical device companies. In terms of energy, we look at new energy, battery technology, hydrogen, things like that. Uh, for advanced manufacturing, we look at, we can look at safety. We can look at uh, carbon abatement, many different things. So we're two years in now to, to Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. Can you share what's going well with you and Clara and team? Yeah, so first, I don't want to claim in any way that we have it all figured out, right? There's still a daily struggle for us to improve and make things better. What I'm happy with is, so when we started about two years ago, we were trying to do a few things. One, prove that it's possible to build deep tech companies in Singapore in the first place. And two, prove that it's possible to do that through an alliance model, which we've described before, right? Yeah. Those were the two main kind of theses. And I think on both accounts, we've done that because we've built 10 companies so far. If you look at the overall portfolio and the, where they stand at this moment in time, they are producing, a, of course, on paper, but still they're producing a return. And there's value creation for society. And the alliance model is working because we have all these partners and the, the number of alliance partners is growing year, on a year-on-year basis. People keep coming back to us. So, okay, that's great. So those are the, from my point of view, the main achievements. Now, there's of course also challenges. I think, uh, I always say that for Singapore Deep Tech Alliance, there's, I see this three phases. So phase one, prove the fundamental thesis. That's what we just did. Phase two is stabilize and really build an engine where you, let's say, churn out 10 very good quality companies every year. So we're starting to be in that phase now. So we need to still increase the number of partners. We need to always make sure that we find the right talent, which is not easy. Try to increase the number of research institutes that we work with and the technology pool so that we have access to more technology. So so all of that is what we hope to do in the next one or two years. Stabilize the organization, grow the organization a little bit. Once that's in place, my third phase plan would be to look at what can we do outside of Singapore. Uh, because the reality is, even though Singapore is a great place, it's also a small place. But there are limitations to talent technology uh, that you run into at some moment in time. Okay. What do you need more of 
let's say in Singapore. Okay, we need always more and better talent. I have maybe a bit of a different opinion than most people. I think nowadays there's sometimes this belief that anyone can be an entrepreneur. I totally disagree with that. I think only a very small subset of the population is hardwired to be an entrepreneur. I also am not sure if entrepreneurship is really something that can be trained. You can hone the skills, but for me, it's almost more of a personality trait than it is a skill set. So to find the people that have that mindset to be an entrepreneur, that's always difficult. So that's one. Then I think the second big thing is capital. So the reality is that there are not enough deep tech investors in Singapore. There's quite a few VCs that claim to invest in deep tech, but at least according to my definition, they don't. And I mean, to some extent, it's understandable, right? If you can invest in a B2C company that already makes revenue and where that you might make an ex exit in four or five years versus a deep tech company with very high technology risk, much more need for capital. It's not for everyone, but that's definitely a challenge. So finding ways to fund companies, knowing that almost in all cases, these companies are pre-revenue, they require significant capital to get to a certain scale. Back to the talent point. If people outside of Singapore want to join your program, can you bring them in or do they already need to be in Singapore? Yeah, so we, as part of our partnership with Enterprise Singapore, we do have the ability to issue recommendation letters for tech entrepreneurs. Okay. So we do recruit outside of Singapore and I wholeheartedly would like to invite anyone that feels compelled to build these type of companies uh, to apply for our program. Um, and then we can help with Enterprise Visa. Of course, that's strings attached, right? So you need to have the right background. Uh, you need to be willing to build a company here. And that's also a longer term commitment, right? Uh, building yes. a tech company takes seven to 10 years if you do it right. So it's still not for everyone, but we do have the ability to find that for foreign talent and also to bring them in. Okay, great to hear. Yeah, that, that's everything I have today, Luke. Thanks. Anything you else you want to mention or specifically plug about Singapore Deep Tech Alliance or anything else? No, I think, I think uh, we covered a lot of ground. So uh, it was great being here and hope you enjoyed. And how can our audience find out more about you? You know, they've been, their interests have been piqued by this and they, they want to connect and dive deep into learning about Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. Yeah, so of course they can find us online, right? They can also reach out to me personally. So my email, I can put it also maybe in the show notes or whatever. Okay. And yeah, if anyone that is interested to get involved, whether that's as a mentor, as an entrepreneur, as an RI, as a corporate, uh, we're always happy to, to chat, to try to build more of these type of companies that can hopefully drive some societal program. Okay, great. Well, thanks. Thanks for your time today, Luke. Thank you so much. And with that, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, Please help to grow the show by sharing with a friend or colleague. Please also hit like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to look out for future episodes as we explore the intersection of science, technology, and business in Singapore together.